Rebecca Larson, and this is my Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Welcome to the show. As many of you may already know, King Henry VIII is my favorite monarch of the Tudor dynasty. If it wasn't for his reign, I do not believe that the Tudors would be as popular as they are today. In this episode, I continue on my journey to explain the Henry that I have learned to love and hate. With the creation of Showtime's The Tudors, many of us were aware of the name Henry VIII, but really didn't know much about him. In the show, we were able to see that there was more to the man than the execution of two of his six wives. While I understand that the Tudors TV program had a bunch of historical inaccuracies, it also got people, like myself, to look deeper into the history by reading and absorbing as much as we possibly could. Over a decade later, I feel I have a fairly good grasp on the infamous king and would like to share my understanding of him with you. Henry VIII was a man. Well, maybe you could say a man-child. But he wasn't just the tyrannical ruler that many see him as today. There was much more to him than most understand. I hope with this series on his life that you will look at Henry through new eyes. Before we dive into this podcast, I need to take a minute to talk about the show. If you're new to my podcast and found me on iTunes, you are missing out on a bunch of episodes that came before I integrated. If you're interested in hearing all of them, you can go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Tudors Dynasty and click on posts. I also have a link to them on TudorsDynasty.com in the menu. If you found me on iTunes, I'd also like to see some more five-star ratings and comments there. The more reviews, the higher I will be on the recommendation list for other Tudor lovers. Speaking of Patreon, I need to thank my existing patrons. Robert, Peggy, Rachel H., Rachel D., Michelle, Lynn, Lacey, Diane, Kathy, Christine, Katie, Stacy, who increased her monthly pledge. Thank you, Stacy. Joy, James, Anne, Azaria, Alithia, Lisa, Nora, Sarah, Wendy, Mary, Cynthia, Melissa S., Nicole, Mary, Cheryl, Carrie, Heather of the English Renaissance History Podcast, Tanya, Donna, Catherine, Jen, Lara, Megan, Melissa C., and Diana E. Without your support, I wouldn't be able to continue with these podcasts, so thank you from the bottom of my heart. It's not only my podcast that you support, but also my website. All the money received from patrons like you go right back into the show, the cost of running the website, and research materials, including subscriptions to those hidden or hard-to-find documents. Believe it or not, I do have a full-time day job, and this is something that I do in my ever-decreasing downtime. Creating a podcast can easily take 15 hours a week, something that my husband might not be too keen about, but he also understands that it's my passion and he supports me. He might also not understand why I'm so obsessed with the tutors, but there are things that he's obsessed with that I don't understand either. If you'd like to become a patron of my podcast, you can go to Patreon. Again, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tutors Dynasty and click on Become a Patron. And for as little as a dollar per month, you can show your support. My website, TutorsDynasty.com, started in June of 2015. With that in mind, June is my third anniversary. Woohoo! This entire month on Facebook only, I will be giving away a bunch of fun tutor or history themed prizes thanks to wonderful authors and friends like 
Seamus. I am not going to slaughter your last name, so we'll just have to wait for the post. Samantha Wilcoxon, Wendy J. Dunn, Natalia Richards, Janet Wertman, Leanda Delisle, Tony Riches, Kira Kramer, Claire Ridgway, Heather Tesco, Adrian Dillard, Judith Arnop. I am sorry if I'm mispronouncing your names. Anne Barnhill, Paula Lofting, Nathan Amin, and Matthew Lewis so excited about all these giveaways so make sure you check the facebook page every day this month weekdays only to find out what the prize of the day is going to be and with that let's get on with the show so sit back relax and prepare to be transported back in time to the reign of king henry the eighth Henry VIII was a great lover of music he had been described as having a great singing voice as well as being a good composer During his summer progress of 1510, Henry entertained himself, and presumably others, by playing the flute, recorder, and virginals. While some believe the king wrote green sleeves, there is no definitive evidence to confirm this. However, we do know that he wrote Pastime with Good Company. Take a listen. Henry and his boon companions not only enjoyed music and dance, but were known to dress in disguise and play games as well. Weeks after Catherine of Aragon had given birth to a prince, the king and a dozen companions invaded the queen's chamber one morning with hoods on their heads and with bows and arrows, swords and such to make them look like outlaws. The queen and her ladies were bewildered by the sight, and after some time, it was revealed to them who these outlaws were. We see this again later on in life when Henry was preparing to wed Anne of Cleves, another time when he dressed in disguise. Unfortunately, things did not turn out as well for him that time, probably because Anne spoke little English and she didn't understand that this was something that the king liked to do. From the beginning of his reign, King Henry VIII understood the importance of having a male heir. He had known of the pretenders from his father's reign and he began his own rule with a healthy paranoia. Good for the king, it didn't take long before the queen gave birth to a prince. Henry, Duke of Cornwall, was born on New Year's Day, 1511. The excitement and joy of having a surviving child, let alone a son, less than a year after the queen's first child, which was a stillborn daughter, was palpable. In celebration, bonfires were lit and wine was given freely around the streets of London. It wasn't only King Henry that was joyous over the birth of a son, but all of England breathed a sigh of relief that the succession was settled so soon into the new king's reign. In gratitude of the birth of a son, King Henry rode to the shrine of Our Lady at Walsingham on a pilgrimage of thanks. While there, he made an offer of gratitude. What it was exactly, I do not know. Unfortunately, the little prince lived for only 52 days. Catherine of Aragon was overwhelmed with sorrow, as was her husband. One can assume that Henry used his parents' behavior after the death of his brother Arthur as an example by concealing his own feelings to comfort and be the strength for his grieving wife. The infant Duke of Cornwall was given a lavish funeral at Westminster Palace. Henry's idea of grieving and moving past this awful loss was by keeping himself busy. As with any of us, we grieve differently. This does not mean that he didn't shed a tear for his lost son. Many times people look at Henry as cool and calculating with ice running through his veins. This is not true. I've always seen Henry as sensitive and emotional. 
Here's an example. In a letter to Erasmus, 16-year-old Henry accounts for his great sadness at the loss of a man he idolized, King Philip of Castile, who was Catherine of Aragon's brother-in-law. Quote, For never since the death of my most dear mother has a less welcome message come to me. And to speak the truth, I was not so ready to attend to your letter as it is singular elegance demanded, but it appeared to reopen a wound which time had begun to heal. But those events that are determined by heaven must be so received by mortals. Meantime, pray proceed and signify to us by letter any news you have. But let your news be of a pleasanter kind, and maybe God bring to a good event whatsoever may happen worth telling. Farewell. End quote. Henry also grieved to the loss of his children. When Catherine of Aragon had a stillbirth or a miscarriage, Henry was as saddened by the event as his queen. We all know that Henry VIII had affairs. However, one thing that we can give the man is that for the most part, he was discreet about them, with the exception of Anne Boleyn during his marriage to Catherine of Aragon. Unlike the French king, Francis I, Henry's infidelities were kept to the time when his wife was pregnant or recovering from pregnancy, and he did not have an official mistress. We can look back at the 20 plus years he was married to Catherine of Aragon to see that most of his mistresses were during Catherine's pregnancies possibly with the exception of Bessie Blount, who gave him a son and was then set aside, so to speak. Catherine of Aragon, like many English and European queens before her, accepted such passing sexual adventures as one of the facts of life in a man's world. She did not need to look any further than her own father for an example of this behavior. Did Henry's father have mistress or mistresses? The only speculation that I have read would be his possible relationship with Catherine Gordon, wife of Perkin Warbeck. But again, we don't know for certain. Henry was a true Renaissance man. He enjoyed the arts and set out to attract as many artists and musicians from abroad that he could. A Florentine sculptor by the name of Pietro Torricano was one of the first to arrive. Torricano was commissioned by Henry to execute the tomb of his father at Westminster Abbey. It appears that this talented artist had much in common with Henry. Some anger issues. Quote, Pietro had permanently disfigured famous artist Michelangelo by a boxer's blow on the nose. He said, quote, I felt bone and cartilage go down like biscuit under my knuckles. End quote. He said. The most well-known artist of Henry's time was by far Hans Holbein the Younger. Holbein was born in southern Germany in the winter of 1497 or 1498. He was taught by his father, Hans Holbein the Elder. Holbein first traveled to England in 1526 with a recommendation to Thomas More from the scholar Erasmus. In 1532, he settled in England, dying of the plague in London in 1543. Holbein was a highly versatile and technically accomplished artist who worked in different mediums. When we look at musicians during Henry's reign, the first that comes to my mind is Thomas Tallis. Tallis was an English composer and by 1543 was composing for Henry VIII. When we think about the legacy of Henry VIII, we must not forget that he established the Royal Navy and encouraged both shipbuilding and dockyards. Henry's father and predecessor, King Henry VII, had started building warships, but had only completed five by the time of his death in 1509. His son, on the other hand, had built 47 ships during his 38-year reign, as well as another 35 which had been acquired by purchase or as prizes. Two of the most well-known warships of his time were the Mary Rose and the Henry Grey Ledoux. 
I think that's how you say that. (laughs) There were obviously many others because there were 38 plus. Um, So I'm just going to name a few. The Mary Imperial, the Falcon in the Fetterlock, Portcullis, and Peter Pomegranate in honor of the Yorkist, Beaufort, and the Badges of Aragon. Henry's military campaigns began in 1511 when he joined the Pope's Holy League against France. How predictable, right? Henry seemed to crave war and notoriety that came with it. Apparently winning a battle made him feel more virile. Or something like that. (laughs) While Henry was off claiming the land in France, his wife Catherine of Aragon, who, by the way, was pregnant at the time, was put in charge as regent in her husband's absence. This was the perfect opportunity, or so they thought, for King James IV to invade England. I often wonder if James IV had any idea who Catherine's mother was, or her father for that matter. One would believe that he would have known that she would not sit quietly and allow him to invade England under her watch. He paid for that mistake with his life. Henry wasn't always successful in his military escapades, and because of them, he quickly depleted his royal coffers. The dissolution of the monasteries during Thomas Cromwell's tenure helped to rebuild them for a short amount of time before he, yet again, went to war with France. Henry was quite the builder as well. Not sure of the exact number, may have been at least a dozen, but his builds compared to the most prolific monarch builder, King Edward I. The difference between the two men was that Henry's building was done quickly, often making his men work overnight by candlelight and fires. And so, because of this, many of his buildings no longer stand today. It's quite a shame. Here are some of the palaces or castles that Henry VIII built from the earth up, or that he built major additions to, making them part of the Tudor legacy, in no particular order. I apologize again if I slaughter some of these names. I always try to look up online how to pronounce them, but in some cases, I can't find anything. So we're going to start with Pendennis Castle, located in Falmouth, Cornwall, was built by King Henry VIII between 1539 and 1545 to guard and defend from perceived French and Spanish threat. During the time that Pendennis Castle was being built, Henry VIII married and divorced Anne of Cleves, married and beheaded Catherine Howard, and married Catherine Parr. He was a busy guy with building and wives. St. James Palace was constructed between 1531 and 1536 and was secondary in Henry's interest to Whitehall Palace. It was a smaller residence to help escape from formal court life. Mainly built with red brick, the palace's architecture is primarily in the Tudor style. The most recognizable feature is the North Gate House, It is decorated with the initials H.A. for Henry and his second wife, Anne Boleyn. St. James Palace was remodeled in 1544, sometime after Henry VIII married Catherine Parr, and the ceilings were painted by Hans Holbein. St. James was described as a pleasant royal house. Interesting side notes, Henry's son, illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy, died at St. James Palace, as did his daughter, Queen Mary I. It is said that his other daughter, Queen Elizabeth I, spent the night in St. James Palace while awaiting the Spanish Armada. In 1538, Henry VIII acquired Oatlands Palace and rebuilt it for Anne of Cleves. In 1540, he married his fifth wife, Catherine Howard, there. Oatlands Palace is where Queen Mary I retreated after her phantom pregnancy. It is when she moved from Hampton Court, which housed the nursery and nursery staff, that her subjects knew that there would be no child. 
little remains of Oatlands Palace near Weybridge in Surrey, where Henry VIII loved to go hunting. The birth of Henry VIII's legitimate son, Prince Edward, led directly to the destruction of the manor of Cuttington. To celebrate both the securing of the succession and the arrival of the 30th year of his reign, Henry decided to build a palace which would have no equal, hence the name None Such, because none such palace could compare. It was said to be quite beautiful and honestly like nothing England had seen before. Building for none such began in 1538. It was the greatest of Henry VIII's building enterprises. It took nine years to build and was completed at a cost of at least £24,000, a phenomenal amount of money for that time. Henry died before the palace was completed. In the 15th century, the archbishops of York built as their London base a place named York Place, which stood on the site of Inigo Jones' banqueting house. When Cardinal Wolsey became Archbishop of York in 1514, he extended the palace, which, like Hampton Court, another of Wolsey's splendid residences, attracted the covetous eye of Henry VIII. In the late 1520s, his reputation failing and desperately trying to retain the king's favor, Wolsey gave York Place to Henry. Renamed Whitehall Palace, it became Henry VIII's principal royal residence. Henry VIII further improved the building to his liking by adding a privy gallery, a bowling alley, a tilt yard, a cockpit, and real tennis courts. Hans Holbein painted many of the ceilings there as well. Beaulieu Palace was the first palace Henry VIII built as King of England in 1516, just a month before the birth of his daughter Mary. Henry had ordered the construction to begin. Beely Palace was a favorite for Queen Mary I. Her father, Henry VIII, had granted Mary the palace in his will. The palace is also where Mary I declared before the sacrament that she would marry Philip. Hampton Court Palace from the beginning was not built by Henry VIII. Henry received it from Wolsey in 1528. Once Henry owned Hampton Court Palace, he began expanding to the house his large court. He might as well have built it because the additions were major. Henry VIII spent £62,000, approximately £18 million today, on Hampton Court in just 10 years. Henry VIII built the low-lying artillery fort of Deal Castle in Kent as one of the string of coastal fortifications built around England's south coast in the later 1530s and early 1540s. Following his break with the Church of Rome, he feared invasion by the armies of France and Spain and the Catholic alliance brokered by the Pope. In 18 months, Henry built three forts, one at Sandown, one at Deal, and one at Walmer to cover that part of the English coast. They were built using press-ganged labor and stone from local religious houses that were suppressed by Henry's dissolution of the monasteries. When you look at a picture of Deal from above, you can notice how it looks like a Tudor rose. Henry was in his late 40s when he built these forts. Anne of Cleves is said to have stayed at Deal Castle after her long journey from Europe on her way to London to meet her future husband. Completed in 1539, Sandsford Castle, historically as Weymouth Castle, was built by Henry VIII to provide in conjunction with Portland Castle the defense for shipping in the safe anchorage of Portland Roads. This castle had two stories plus a basement. It was built to protect against invasion from France and the Holy Roman Empire. 
Now let's look at the Reformation. Let's start by looking at the contradiction that is Henry VIII. On the 17th of October, 1521, Pope Leo X declared King Henry the Defender of the Faith. This title was given to honor Henry for his book, Defense of the Seven Sacraments, which attacked the theology of Martin Luther and was dedicated to the Pope. Henry gladly took the honor and added it to his royal title, becoming Henry VIII, by the grace of God, King of England and France, Defender of the Faith, and Lord of Ireland. Wasn't that a mouthful? After Henry broke with Rome, Pope Paul III excommunicated Henry and rescinded the grant of the title Defender of the Faith in 1538. Of course, Parliament, or quite possibly Henry himself, would not acknowledge the ruling and the title remained. As the reform was spreading through Europe, Henry fought against it. It is until his conscience got the best of him. After two decades of marriage and no surviving male sons, he became convinced that his marriage was not favorable with God. While reading Sarah Griswood's book, Game of Queens, she discusses two different debates regarding Henry's concern with his first marriage. In the book of Leviticus, the Bible says, If a man shall take his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. Thy shall be childless. Now, in Henry's mind, this meant not without child, but without male heir. Clearly, he interpreted things the way that would benefit him. However, in the book of Deuteronomy, it contradicts Leviticus, saying that a man has a duty to marry his deceased brother's widow and to raise up seed for his brother. So, which was it? Was Henry supposed to marry his brother's widow, or wasn't he? This is a topic I'm always torn on. Henry was a deeply religious man. He was raised for the church and studied theology feverishly. Maybe he truly believed that God frowned on his marriage. It's easy for us to look at him from the standards of today and say, what a pig. He just wanted Catherine out of the way to wed Anne Boleyn. Did he? He could have just as easily tired of Anne and moved on to more willing mistresses, right? Okay, so I got off track there. Now let's get back to it. In England, the Reformation began with Henry VIII's quest for a male heir. When Pope Clement VII refused to accept a divorce or annul Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon, Henry declared that he alone should be the final authority in matters relating to the English church. It has been suggested that Anne Boleyn provided the king with books that were banned in England due to heresy to convince him that he should not have to answer to Rome. He was anointed by God. Henry dissolved England's monasteries to confiscate their wealth and worked to place the Bible in the hands of the people. Beginning in 1536, every parish was required to have a copy. Now let's look at the Great Bible. Wikipedia explains the Great Bible as the Great Bible of 1531 was first authorized edition of the Bible in English, authorized by King Henry VIII of England, to be read aloud in the church services of the Church of England. The Great Bible was prepared by Miles Coverdale, working under the commission of Thomas Lord Cromwell, secretary to Henry VIII and vicar general. In 1538, Cromwell directed the clergy to provide one book of the Bible of the largest volume in English, and the same set up in some convenient place within the said church that ye have care of, whereas your parishioners may not commodiously resort to the same and read it. After Henry's death, England tilted towards Calvinist-infused Protestantism during Edward VI's six-year reign and then endured five years of reactionary Catholicism under Mary I. In 1559, Elizabeth I took the throne and during her 44-year reign cast the Church of England as a middle way between Calvinism and Catholicism, 
with a vernacular worship and revised Book of Common Prayer. Now, when we look at the not-so-flattering side of King Henry, we quickly recall that he married six times and then he executed two of his wives, blah, blah, blah. It wasn't only his wives that he executed, but he also executed friends like Thomas More and Thomas Cromwell. Both deaths he regretted deeply afterward. Oh, and if you had any claim in your bloodline to the throne of England, he'd probably also execute you. I've read that Henry VIII was responsible for possibly 72,000 executions during his nearly four-decade reign. That number, in my opinion, is highly over-exaggerated. If you consider the population of England during the reign of King Henry was about 2.5 million people, that would mean that Henry executed about 2.8% of the population of England. Then we'd have to take into account how many people died of the plague and the sweating sickness as well as battles. There'd be like two people left. Okay, maybe a few more, but you get where I'm going with all this. There is, however, a list on Wikipedia of Protestants executed under Henry VIII. That list, if correct, totals 63 victims from 1530 to 1546. So while Henry executed a lot of people, I definitely question the 72,000 number that's been floating around. Let's go back to those with a bloodline that threatened Henry's throne. It's easy for us to look at his actions by the standards of this century. However, one must remember that Henry was only the second Tudor king to sit on the historically unstable throne of England. If there was any indication that someone was plotting to overthrow him, Henry reacted quickly and decisively. Let's be honest, with England's history with the Wars of the Roses, he truly had to. I believe the first person who posed a threat to his reign was Edmund de la Pole. Edmund was the son of John de la Pole and Elizabeth Plantagenet. He was nephew to Edward IV and Richard III. After the execution of Edward Plantagenet, Earl of Warwick, in 1499, Edmund de la Pole was the next Yorkist with a claim to the throne. Outwardly, de la Pole appeared loyal. However, he was upset when Henry refused him the dukedom after his father's death. He was eventually executed in 1513. And there was Edward Stafford, 3rd Duke of Buckingham. Henry had him beheaded. Stafford was charged with imagining and encompassing the death of the king. Through seeking out prophecy from a monk named Nicholas Hopkins regarding the chances of the king having a male heir. The evidence to back this up was supposedly obtained from disgruntled former members of the duke's household. Did he deserve to be executed? I don't know. But at the time, he was seen as a real threat, and so Henry had to act. One of the executions that Henry regretted the most was Sir Thomas More. In my honest opinion, I think Henry felt cornered on this matter and had to use More as an example to others who were refusing to sign the Oath of Supremacy and would not acknowledge Henry as supreme head of the Church of England. More stood by his convictions and lost his head for it. Lastly, another person whose heritage threatened the stability of Henry's reign was Margaret Pole and her sons. Margaret's life was marred by death. Her father was executed by her uncle, King Edward IV. Her mother died when she was just a child, and her uncle, Richard III, the king that died to make way for the Tudors. I believe she is the oldest person to be executed at the Tower of London. Salisbury's execution was private, but that doesn't mean that there were not witnesses. It just means that the number of spectators were far fewer than a public execution. Pole's execution was wholly unnecessary, and I believe it was used as a way to punish her for her son, Reginald Pole, and his siding with the Pope during the Reformation. 
Of course, those are only a few examples of notable executions during Henry's reign. There were also family members like the king's sister, Mary, who secretly wed Charles Brandon after the death of her husband, King Louis XII of France. Both she and Brandon were spared. Unfortunately, his niece, Margaret Douglas daughter of his sister Margaret and Archibald Douglas was not as safe from the wrath of her uncle. But to be quite honest, Margaret brought her imprisonment in the tower on herself. Margaret had taken matters into her own hands and made a pre-contract for marriage with Lord Thomas Howard, the younger brother of the third Duke of Norfolk. As the niece of the King of England, she was not allowed to choose her own husband. It was the right of the king to arrange the marriage that would be beneficial for the kingdom. She and Howard were sent to the tower. Howard would eventually die there after Margaret was released. The fear was that Howard only wished to wed Margaret because he knew that she was the only legitimate member of the family in the line of succession. So to summarize the positive things that came from the reign of Henry VIII, in my opinion, Henry allowed the Bible to be translated into English. This, for the 16th century, was quite controversial. In his act of succession, he did allow his two daughters to follow his son. His daughter Mary became the first queen regnant in English history. Quite magnificent, actually. Henry VIII was considered the founder of the English Royal Navy and helped to grow the number of ships within it exponentially. And he built or added on to several castles. In my mind, it's easy to justify Henry VIII's actions. As King of England, he was responsible for all those who resided there. The choices he made were not only for him, but for an entire country. It's easy to make judgment on a man for his actions, but I don't believe it's fair to judge him by today's standards. If we take a step back and look at situations and what was going on during the time, it should help us understand a little better why he did what he did. I agree, not all of his actions were justified. But let's be fair, the main reason so many know his name is because he married six times and signed the death warrants to have two of his wives executed. Thank you so much for joining me again for this series on Understanding the Man, Henry VIII. Until next time.